Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and today on the show, we're going to be talking about the Kansas City Chiefs 31-20 victory over the NFC West rival San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. The Seahawks are still the only team in the NFC West with a Super Bowl title since Seattle joined the NFC West in 2002. Also, two new members of the Hall of Fame spent time in Seattle. Steve Hutchinson, part of the 2005 Super Bowl season, and Edger and James, who carried the ball 46 times for the Jim Morris Seahawks. We'll begin to all that, but joining me to talk about it is Dana O'Gorman, editor and senior NFL writer for Our Turf Football. She's also in the Kansas City area. And Dana, I just got to know, how much of a party was it around Kansas City last night? Well, I think I finally heard the fireworks stop probably about two to three hours after the Super Bowl was <laughs> over. Now, I will tell you that this town, I don't know what it is, but they light off, light off fireworks for everything. But last night, it was chaos. It, it was a lot of fun. This whole week in Kansas City has been unlike anything I've ever seen, e- even more than when the Royals won the, the World Series a few years back. It it was just the, the pride of the town and the excitement. You couldn't go five feet without running into someone in a chief shirt who was talking about the game. And so it, it was just really, it was a really fun week in Kansas City. Well, one of the things that it's starting to build now is the narrative after the Super Bowl. And yes, it's only, you know, about 24 hours after the game. <laughs> and it feels like the the common narrative now. And I think it was going to happen is I, I don't know what the minimum amount of lead that Kyle Shanahan would have had to lose by. Mm. But, you know, losing the 28 to three lead uh, when he was OC for the Falcons and now as coach of the 49ers losing a 20 to 10 lead in the fourth quarter. I, is it fair to give Shanahan a choker tag after, after only giving up 10 and losing a 10 point lead to the chiefs? And I, my answer is no. And I know that might not be popular with Seahawks fans. (laughs) Like we're ready to write them off. Right. But um, no, I think what this was the, the 28 to three lead loss in Atlanta, that was, despicable. That was something that should have never happened. That was a complete meltdown of an entire team. I, you can't even really lay that completely at the feet of Shanahan. But a 10-digit lead against Patrick Mahomes in this Kansas City Chiefs offense, I don't think that even fits in the same category, to be quite honest with you. I think that what happened, and, and I, I just wrote an article, it, it'll be released here in just a little bit. It, it, I think what happened is they started to feel it They started to feel the win a little too early and that you can't really blame on him. That was on the players. And I think the players are owning that today, but I do think that there was obviously the questionable, why didn't he call a timeout? Even John Lynch is up there, you know, (laughs) trying to do the timeout sign. And, you know, and there were maybe a couple calls, but it was more had to do with blown coverage on the defensive side. You know, that third and 15 should have never happened Mm -hmm. that the Kansas city converted. Um, but that was player error. I don't necessarily think that that was all on Shanahan. Now, will that change the narrative? No, because in football, that's what we love, right? We love the good story. But I think that I, I don't think that this loss is anywhere near the Atlanta loss just because it was against Patrick Mahomes in that fantastic offense. Well, and that's part of the problem I'm having with buying into this, the choker narrative for Shanahan mm-hmm. is because 
you know, go back to Super Bowl 49, the the Super Bowl that the Seahawks lost. I know we don't like to go back there, but the Seahawks <laughs> had a 10 point lead and that was with the Legion of Boom as the defense. And yes, I know they're missing Cliff Averill, but a 10 point lead for the Seahawks going into the fourth quarter, that was supposed to be enough for for a potential win. And I don't think of. I don't look back at that and say that Pete Carroll took his foot off the gas because there were moments where they were, I guess you did have the one drive where uh, I I think Marshawn got it twice uh, in a row and then they went to throw it on third down and Russell Wilson got sacked. And I think that was one of the drives in the fourth quarter, but there were moments where, you know, wide open uh, Jermaine curse uh, doesn't uh, come down with the football. And I, I just think if they are able to execute in those moments, much like the 49ers, uh, against the Kansas City Chiefs, if they're able to execute down the stretch, then it's a totally different game. It, it is. And and that's actually a really good analogy as much as, yes, we like to avoid that conversation. But what what happened is is very similar. So you had a defense that was starting to get tired toward the end of a game in the Seattle um, Patriots game. Obviously, you know, we didn't have Cliff Averill. Sherman was hurt. We had all these injuries, you know, that they were still out there trying to play. And you had that offense. You have to give credit to the other side of the ball. You know, that was Tom Brady. You know, it's 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 much the same in that it's not that the other team, you know, the 49ers in this aspect or Seattle then um, back then, it's not that they let up. It's not like that they were at least in the coaching staff. Now, I can't speak for the players, but, you know, at least in the coach, it's not like they were saying, oh, we got this. We're done. Let's go, you know, give me the Gatorade bath now. That wasn't what was happening. It's just that the other team's strength started to shine. And that's exactly what happened last night. That San Francisco defense is fantastic. But that offense in Kansas City, finally, and they showed in the playoffs all season, it took them till the fourth (laughs) quarter to figure it out sometimes. But they figured it out and figured out exactly where to attack. And so credit goes to Andy Reid and the Chiefs, not necessarily does the blame then fall on Shanahan's shoulders? Well, you know, this that brings me to one of these other narratives that I'm having a hard time with today, and that's the media fawning over Patrick Mahomes and his ability to come from behind in the playoffs. You know, I've been hearing for weeks the argument for the opposite, you know, and, and maybe I'm misunderstanding something, but it's very strange to hear how it's, you know, such a great accomplishment for the Chiefs to to come back again and again and again in the playoffs, yet, I hear all the complaints about Pete Carroll for waiting until the fourth <laughs> quarter to pull out the win. Yeah. Hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. It is, it's very frustrating. Um, especially, you know, the funny thing is that we, we get frustrated as Seahawks fans and um, as football fans watching because we don't feel that Seattle gets the credit for the things that they do. They are the forgotten child up in the corner, right? We right. always talk about that. And yet at the same time, teams like Kansas City, who is another small market team, we do have to keep that in mind, you know, is getting all the praise for this. Well, why? Because it fits the narrative now. You know, it doesn't fit the narrative two weeks ago when everyone was like, oh, no, Patrick Mahomes can't get behind in the first half. If they do, they'll never come back on the San Francisco defense. You know, forget it. He has to get get, get it together. But then when he does it, oh, now it's a happy story. So we're just going to flip that a little bit, you know, and, and kudos to him for doing that. I think that it is great that they can pull it off. I just wish that everyone got credit. <laughs> well, I was buying into that narrative, too, because going into this game, I, I had the same kind of thought that, 
if the Chiefs got down by 10 points, much like they did in in the last couple games, that the 49ers defense, it was completely different. It was going to be a defense that was able to shut out Patrick Mahomes. And, you know, they nearly did it. It was giving up that third Mm -hmm. and 15 play deep down the field. And that's really what this game turned on. It definitely was, but I want to I want to look at it from a different perspective. So you're absolutely right. They almost did it. How many times did they almost stop Patrick Mahomes? Or they they did stop them, but then Garoppolo could not finish. Maybe we need to look at the offensive side of this ball. And I, I'm not trying to 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 bag on the offense in San Francisco, but they've always had their cracks, always. And and that's how the teams that did beat them um, managed to do it because they found those cracks. And I think that Jimmy Garoppolo and some of that other the offensive players got in their head last night. That overthrow that would have been a guaranteed touchdown, I couldn't even, I was flabbergasted when I saw how he threw that. And, and it just was so many mistakes by so many different players. But I really think that needs to go on the offensive side of the ball because they could have come back. They could have taken the lead at that point and they just couldn't finish it. Yeah, it does make you wonder just how a guy like Garoppolo is going to handle this offseason, how the front office is going to handle this offseason with uh, Garoppolo going in as quarterback next year. You know, it'll be interesting. And and as um, I mentioned before we started recording, I did look at the cap situation and they're not in great shape. Yeah. So that it's going to be interesting to see kind of what actually neither are the Chiefs. The Chiefs and the 49ers are both. Um, not in great shape. I think they're like 23rd and 26th respectively in the number and how much cap space they have. But um, I think that it is going to be an interesting off season. And it's always a little more interesting for the team that lost because you have to look at it and say, okay, where did we fall? Well, to be honest with you, it's a real complete team right now. San Francisco is a great team. And so they're going to have to make some hard decisions. And it It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, it even takes me back to earlier this season when I had Eric Davis on the show and we were talking about what the 49ers' biggest weakness was. And he said, to be honest with you, I think their biggest weakness is quarterback. And it kind mm-hmm. of played out that way. Yep. And I, you, that is not the only time I have heard that. And and it's not, you know, and I tried to, because I wrote, covered the NFC West this season. And, and I tried to really look at it from the 49ers' point of view. And truly, Jimmy Garoppolo had not started that many games. Because he had only started a handful with the Patriots. And then he came to San Francisco, and then he got hurt. He missed most of that entire season. So really, he doesn't have, even though it feels like he's been around for a while now, he really hasn't played all that much football. So it'll be interesting to see if he takes that as a challenge next year, makes the jump next year, starts to become a more complete player, or if we've found that there is a ceiling with Garoppolo. I I don't know, and I don't think we will know until he goes through another full season. So where do you think, of, of all the gripes that 49ers fans can have, after losing to the Chiefs, what do you think the biggest gripe would be that you that you would expect to hear from a 49ers fan? Well, I've been hearing a lot of that was not OPI against Kittle, which they are wrong. It was <laughs> definitely OPI because you can't lock your elbow. Yeah. And I don't know how many times you can tell people that they don't want to hear it. They want to see. And, and then it didn't help that Shanahan said in his press conference that that's what turned the game. And it was like, oh, now that's all we're going to hear about for a while. <laughs> Oh my gosh, how did that, that was going into halftime. You couldn't recover from that after halftime? You know, you know, momentum swings. It's like momentum swings every play. So we just have to, yeah, anyway. But I, you know, I think if they could really gripe about anything, um, they're going to look at the coaching. I don't think they're going to blame the players. I think they understand, and and not necessarily, I'm not saying that that's correct and that's what they should do, but I can imagine it's real easy to lay 
blame and be upset at leadership when your team as a whole doesn't play because the defense, like we said, started to slow down. Then the offense wasn't, you know, um, doing what they needed to do. So it's easy to then lay that at the feet of Shanahan. Now they're both going to get contract extensions. This, this team is not going anywhere, but I think the fans are smart enough to understand how difficult it is to get to the Super Bowl, you know, and how, if you take the Patriots out of the equation, really how many teams can say they've gone back to back or they've had the same success one year to the next. So I think fans are smart enough. And so they, they're going to have to look at what piece didn't work. What do we need to improve on? What don't we? But then eventually they'll just complain about coaching like every other fan does. Well, if history has anything to tell us, I think they'll probably be complaining about that Kittle call for the rest of their history because I still <laughs> complain about the Daryl Jackson push off in the, in the end zone from the 2005 Super Bowl. Oh, that 2005 Super Bowl had a lot of things to complain about. <laughs> and I think a lot of us carry the chip on our shoulder for sure. But um, yeah, I think you're right. You know, officiating, coaching, those things are the easy things to lay the blame at. Um, and then we'll just have to wait and see what they do in the offseason um, to see where they plan to go from there. Well, and there's a lot to talk about in the offseason. And one of the things that I think a lot of us like to do with the offseason is look at the winner and decide what they have done and what other teams in the NFL should take away from it, what our own team should take away from it. And I want to talk about that with you, Dana, coming up after the break. Talking to Dana O'Gorman, editor and senior NFL writer for Our Turf Football. And we're talking about the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs getting the win. And as I mentioned, coming into the break, you know, there was there's lessons that I feel like all teams like to take away from the winner. Now that the Chiefs have won, I'm curious about what you think, what you think other people are going to look at and about this Kansas City team and say, this is what we have to do in the offense to to come out on top next year. Well, I think what people are going to say and what is true are two very different things, to be quite honest with you. So I think they're going to look at this Kansas City offense and they're going to say, throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball. That the run game, you know, is not as important. Have a decent defense. You don't have a fantastic defense, but everything surrounding, you know, throwing the ball is the most important. And I disagree with that, obviously. I I do believe that a strong run game is really important. And one of the things that points to that is the fact that Patrick Mahomes got hurt this year. You know, you have to have that run game to offset. Quarterbacks who have been successful for a long term and not had a lot of injuries, not missed whole seasons, you know, have a lot of times had a run game to offset how much they play um, and how much they're doing. And I think the perfect example of that is Aaron Rodgers, where they have never had a decent run game in the last few years and how many seasons in a row did he get hurt? Um, but I think what really the lesson that people should look at Kansas city is a, what a lot of teams are doing. And that is you take your young quarterback while he still doesn't cost you very much money. You build around him, you pay a few, a handful of superstars, you get some good people around him and you make your run before he's too expensive. Mm. And that's exactly what Kansas city has done. That's what Seattle did. That's what, a lot of teams have done because the minute you have to start paying that quarterback, it puts you into a cap situation. Now, Kansas City is already there and they haven't even paid Mahomes yet. And so and they have to pay Chris Jones. They have to pay Chris Jones. They have to figure out what they're going to do with Travis Kelsey. Now, that is the big rumor here in town in Kansas City is they have a there's a feeling there's some murmurs are going around 
that Travis Kelsey might not be here in the next year or two because he's expensive. He has an $8 million cap hit next year. And with them needing um, some space that he might fetch the biggest trade offers, which would be true. Travis Kelsey would be huge, but he's also one of the most important people on the team. But do you need a Kelsey and a Tyree kill? Do you need, you know, do you have to look at the defense a little more? There's going to be a lot of give and take. So I love it when I hear fans and players, all the players are going to play for Kansas City for the rest of their lives. You know, we hear that all over and over and over again. And then we hear fans, oh, this team is young. We're going to make run after run after run. We're going to become the new dynasty. And that just isn't truly feasible anymore with the way this is structured. Now, the other thing that's coming up is the new CBA. That's going to change a lot of things. But I think for right now, the biggest takeaway is that when your team has a quarterback or whoever their superstar player is on the cheapest contract possible, that's when you build and that's when you make your run because it gets real hard to do after that. Oh my gosh, Dana, there's so many different directions I want to take this in after, after <laughs> this last comment. Let, let's start Let's start with Travis Kelsey because that is a really curious argument that it, the idea that they could be giving up a, a piece like Kelsey to try and meet, you know, the salary cap demands and and yeah, with Mahomes and Chris Jones, it it, uh, it seems like yeah, there has to be some kind of give. There has to. I mean, because Frank Clark costs them quite a bit of money right. now too. I mean, they invested a lot in him, and Tyron so they're, they're gonna yeah uh, yeah they're gonna run out of money, and they already are starting to. And so you have to make some hard choices. And when you make those hard choices, and this is the argument being made here, is that you look at all of your pieces. Can you get a rookie tight end that can do maybe half of what Kelsey does? Kelsey hasn't been as productive this year as he was last year, and yet he costs a lot. But who will give you the biggest trade value? Well, Tyreek Hill has a little bit of a PR problem, and we all know that. And I'm still really surprised he's on the team here in Kansas City. But I don't know that you would fetch that with those PR problems as much as you would for Travis Kelsey, who's loud and boisterous and very Gronkowski-like and, you know, that people can really get behind. And so do he would be the easiest piece to move. And that's not necessarily my opinion. I don't think he's going anywhere, but that seems to be what people are talking about here. Well, and the reason why I wanted to go this direction was because the Seahawks notorious for trading away first round picks. They trade away a first round pick to get Jimmy Graham from the New Orleans Saints. And I could see the Seahawks, you know, if they could find a, a piece like that to add to the offense and give up a late first round pick to just the idea that Kelsey might be out and available. It's very intriguing to me. Right. I mean, he's he's nowhere near the end of his contract yet, but he is now in the meat of his contract. And so that that seems to be a conversation being had now. I, there'll be a thousand people that are going to get on your Twitter and say that I'm completely wrong and I'm an idiot. But I'm just telling you, that's what's. <laughs> That's what's going on here in Kansas City. That's what the grumblings are just due to kind of who he is. Do I think it's a good idea? No. If you can manage to work around it, but you can't pay everybody. So where do you start to nip and tuck from? Hey, when Jimmy Graham was traded from the Saints to the Seahawks, if if we would have been having that discussion after the Super Bowl that the Seahawks could potentially get Jimmy Graham. uh, They would have thought we were idiots. Exactly. So, yeah, (laughs) lay off me, Twitter people. (laughs) Exactly. You know, one other interesting thing that I've heard coming out of the Super Bowl is uh, listening to Pro Football Talk and Chris Sims. And he pointed out something that was interesting to me and that there might be a trend forming with Pete Carroll defenses in the Super Bowl. 
and we talked about this uh, aspect of choking and going back to Super Bowl 49 with the Seahawks up 10 points. They lose the game with uh, the Pete Carroll defense, Super Bowl 51. It was the, the Falcons uh, up by 16 in the fourth quarter. They end up losing the Falcons with Dan Quinn playing the Pete Carroll style defense. And now Robert Sala in San Francisco giving up 10 points in the fourth quarter. I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me. And Sims thought was that because there's no variation really in what the defense tends to do, it allows the offense to wait and expose the defense in the fourth quarter. Well, I can see the thought process behind that. I don't know that I necessarily agree because then why wouldn't you expose it in the first quarter too? Sure. You know what I mean? But at the same time, there, there is some logic. I think what, what happens is it, it not necessarily, especially we go back to Super Bowl 49 with the Seahawks. I really think that had a lot more to do with injury than it did and, and the talent of Tom Brady than, than necessarily the style of defense they were playing because it was working so well. Mm-hmm. But you're right. We are seeing, you know, Seahawks or Pete Carroll type defenses grow. And now there's even the rumor that Chris Richard might end up in San Francisco as a coach. And so, you know, they're, they, they seem to, defensive coordinators seem to gravitate toward that style. But I can't really say that I would agree that that is the problem with the end of these these games. I think it has more to do with depth. I think it has more to do with being tired and, you know, the defense, the entire game resting on the shoulders of the defense. And that's what has happened. That's what happened yesterday with the problems that Garoppolo was having. But do I think we'll see a change? I do. I think a lot of teams might, you know, switch it up just a little bit more, maybe not have quite, you know, the same formula that they've had just because these offenses are getting so high powered, at least when you play certain teams, you're going to have to switch it up when you play certain teams. Yeah. It was just one of those things that was interesting to me because I hadn't heard anybody kind of put that together of, of those losing those leads in the fourth quarter and whether it's coincidence or whether it is some kind of potential trend, it's something to watch and, and see that uh, it, it may lead to the idea of, Maybe it is better to come back rather than try and, you know, carry a a 10 point lead into the fourth quarter. And and I know as Seahawks fans, it's, you know, it's so hard getting used to coming back all the time, but uh, I do like winning. So, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, I do think I look at it this way, too, you know, as and this is just my little soapbox. But, you know, we have this group of very vocal fans who are really down on Pete Carroll right now, which is baffling to me. And and they don't like, you know, oh, he does the same thing and his defense is this and his defense is that. But yet we see that defense spreading throughout the league. And So I think it's funny that that, you know, Seahawks fans are complaining about it, but other D.C., you know, are, are picking it up. But. That's just me. I think it's weird. But I do think you're right. I think that there has to be a change. There has to be definitely in Seattle and maybe with some of these other teams. I think Atlanta, you know, they struggled so much this year. There definitely has to be a big shakeup there. But at least when you play certain quarterbacks, let's say Lamar, let's say, you know, Patrick, let you know, those type of quarterbacks, the younger, faster ones, mm-hmm. maybe that's the better way to do it than the, you know, traditional sit in the pocket quarterbacks. They're going to have to mix it up a little bit. And that's going to be hard for some teams to do. Well, you brought up the Falcons and with the Seahawks looking to improve their defense in the offseason, we saw the Falcons announce that they are not pursuing defensive end Vic Beasley. They're going to allow him to hit free agency. Any thoughts on Beasley as a potential option as a pass rusher for the Seahawks? 
I mean, you can bring them in. You can give them, I, I always look at the reasoning. I mean, is it, is it money? Is it, they don't want to pay him what he's worth. I mean, the kid's only 27 years old, mm-hmm. you know, he's young, he's fast. Um, and so, you know, he's been first team all pro he was sack leader. I mean, he's got the pedigree, but what I think that we've discovered is, uh, you know, watching the Seahawks for so many years is you have to be able to fit within the system and you have to be able to buy into what they're selling. I mean, that's just the way this team is run. And so I, I, it never hurts to kick the tires on anyone. And I, I fully believe, you know, in the theory that Pete Carroll and John Snyder have had of, you know, why not bring him in? Let's see what, what's the worst that can happen. It's a boring visit. We send him home. You know what I mean? But again, the Seahawks have a lot of cap space <laughs> to play with. And so I expect there'll be a lot of free agents floating through VMAC because they got the money to spend and I think they plan on spending it. Well, and it is going to depend, you know, with that idea, I think it will depend on where Beasley goes in free agency. If he's part of that first wave, then I do mm-hmm. think that Pete Carroll, they, they like to look for those guys who will fit the locker room. First wave guys, you know, that that's the tough part about it is you don't know. Uh, you right. don't have all that don't much information except for, you know, if he did, he uh, looked back to Pete Carroll recruiting visits or draft visits, I guess, with uh, the guys a few years ago and kind of get a sense from it from there. But uh, not, you know, going after a guy who has no attachment to the team, it, it does make it difficult. Right. I think that the Seahawks might have one leg up, though, coming from the Falcons. I think there'll be a phone call picked up and said, (laughs) so, Dan Quinn, what are we doing here? What's happening? What's shaking? And that's the nice, you know, the beauty of this. I will tell you, um, I was lucky enough to go cover the Pro Bowl for the second year for our turf football this year and and, um, got to spend some time um, on the practice field with the players, talking with the players about a few things. But watching Pete Carroll with those NFC guys on their practice I will tell you that they are right. They were 100% right. That was nothing but a week-long recruiting session. <laughs> I, P. Carroll's going up. He's talking to every single player. He's getting in there, talking to it. And how lucky. What a perfect time for Pete Carroll to have that opportunity to go and talk with those guys and be around those guys and, you know, see who they are as people. Because you can watch film to see how they are on the field. But, you know, Pete Carroll is a personality guy. And so I thought that that was, hmm, I like all that money. And then he gets to hang out with those guys for a week. That was pretty good time. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm racking my brain now thinking of potential free agents on that 2020 <laughs> Pro Bowl roster that, uh, that he might have been you know, specifically recruiting. Right. And I look at the Minnesota Vikings. There were a lot of Vikings there and they're going to have to have a fire sale this year because they're already 12 million in the hole. So I think that maybe there might have been a lot of time spent with those Viking guys. We'll see. We'll see what happens. There we go. Well, one cool thing from this past weekend, we got to see another member of the Seahawks into the Hall of Fame, Steve Hutchinson, the former Pro Bowl and All-Pro guard for the Seattle Seahawks next to Walter Jones, part of that 2005 Super Bowl team. He finally, he gets into the, and I say finally, it's been a couple of years that he's had to wait, but he, he finally gets the call to get into the Hall of Fame and uh, another cool moment just to see another member of the Seahawks get in. You know, that team, if you really look at it, that 2005 Super Bowl team was amazing. And, and I don't know that newer Seahawks fans really can kind of grasp that. The old guys like us, we've been around a minute. We know how this is. You know, we watched that team. We watched how they play, but to, to hear Seahawks fans that have been around for a long time talk about Walter Jones, to talk about that line, to talk about all of them. You know, it, it's hard to explain to maybe newer fans how important they were and how 
good they were. My God, Sean Alexander would not have been Sean Alexander without these guys. That's just the way that it is. And so, you know, I feel like I'm glad he's getting recognized. This was the, in that, that it's his time. I think he had to wait two years to get in. And so, you know, not terribly long. We know some guys have been waiting longer, but yep. I think that it's very deserved and that he really was a force no matter what team. Now he left Seattle, obviously kind of on a bad note as we all know the poison pill story. But I think that what was really interesting when they announced him as being making it into the hall of fame is that it wasn't just Seattle. Seattle was, you know, put this huge thing. Congratulations, Hutch. You know, we're so excited. But then so did the Vikings where he went after that. They're like, you know, Vikings legend, Steve Hutchins has made it into, and then the Titans, Titans legend, Steve Hutchins. <laughs> and so I think that's why you look at it and it's like Hutchinson was so important no matter where he was. And so I think that that is that, that just kind of shows the impact that he made. Well, and just to give people the quick overview on the poison pill, you know, Mike yeah. Holmgren, he, he wanted to franchise tag Steve Hutchinson and Tim Ruskell, the general manager at the time, he decided to put the transition tag on him, which allowed another team to come and offer Hutchinson a contract to essentially negotiate the contract for the team. Now, the thing, the, the way that the Vikings got around this is that they put a clause in there that said that Hutchinson had to be the highest paid offensive lineman if yeah. it was something to do with the number of games he played in Seattle, which would have been, you know, an eight game uh, home season had he stayed in Seattle and would have made him the highest paid offensive lineman over Walter Jones. And the Seahawks were not going to pay Hutchinson more than, you know, a first ballot Hall of Fame player like Walter Jones. And that's what really allowed the Vikings to really steal him away from Seattle. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I have been um, I, I've been on a couple of Vikings podcasts over the years. It's always brought up every single time. <laughs> I'm sure they I love it. They probably think it was the greatest they move they ever made. It. They were like, it was so smooth. And it was. <laughs> I mean, you have to give the Vikings management credit for what they pulled off there because it was a huge steal. It was a huge, huge steal and a huge get. So, yeah, bitter taste. But as we know, Hutchinson then it was kind of brought back into the fold in Seattle. They were pretty mad for a while, but then he did raise the 12th man flag. I think just a couple years ago at a playoff game or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he was he he came back to be you know the prodigal son that we all loved. So that was good. Definitely good to have him back, and also good to see a guy like Andrew and James get in. Although it, you know, of all the Seahawks running backs that I thought would have been the second running back to get in after Franco Harris and his short time in Seattle, I, I kind of thought that Ricky Waters might get in. Shoot, I think I even thought maybe Sean Alexander would get in uh, before a guy like Edger and James. But uh, congratulations to Edger and James as well. I completely agree, and you know, I'm not. Again, we're not saying it's not deserved. It's just, and that's the funny thing about the Pro Bowl. I had someone ask and say, Dana, who's not in the Pro Bowl that should be? Well, God, that's such a subjective question. Right. Because it just depends on where your loyalties lie and offense and defense and who's been waiting longer. And there's so much to it. So you can't always predict the way it's going to go. But congratulations to everyone who made it in. Well, Dana, really want to thank you for coming on the show. If people want to check out your work, I know you have an article there at Our Turf Football and talking about adding extra games to the season, if that's a good idea and kind of what the players are saying. And then you got another article coming up to tell people where to go to find it. So you can always go to OurTurfFB.com um, or you can always find our links on Twitter, either at OurTurfFB or at Dana OG. 
follow her on Twitter at Dana OG and be sure to follow at fieldgoals.com. Subscribe to the show, sbnation.com slash NFL podcast. And we will talk to you again later this week. Go Hawks. <laughs>